Hi, everyone, and welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration, refugee, and population issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I am Rachel Reyes, CMS's Director of Communications. In this episode, Executive Director Donald Kerwin speaks with Michael Chertoff, former Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. They speak on migration, refugee protection, and national security issues. Their conversation was recorded on July 9, 2016, days before the recent terrorist attack in Orlando, Florida. And now, here's Don's interview with Secretary Chertoff. We're very pleased to be speaking today to Michael Chertoff. Secretary Chertoff has served as the chief federal prosecutor who in the mid-1980s secured racketeering convictions against the heads of the five New York Mafia families. He was the assistant attorney general of the criminal division from 2001 to 2003, Um, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security from 2005 to 2009, and a federal judge with the Third Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, and is now the executive chairman of the Chertoff Group, which he co-founded. Mr. Secretary, thank you for making time to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. Great. And we're going to talk uh, mostly about immigration-related security issues, if that's okay. Sure. Um, So, Secretary Chertoff, the security of the U.S. and immigration in European immigration and refugee systems has received significant attention over the last two years. In addition, uh, we're approaching that very sad day, September 11th, 2001, the the anniversary of, um, of that attack. And I wonder if you might start by reflecting on the vulnerabilities that were exposed by the attacks, as well as the migration-related security lessons U.S. intelligence, law enforcement, and security agencies took from 9-11. Well, it's important, first of all, to recognize that the hijackers who came in on 9-11 did not come in as immigrants. They came in as visitors, and they had visitors' visas. And one of the things that was revealed by uh, the terrible tragedy and the, and the horrible crime of September 11th was that we were weak in terms of not only our visa screening system, but our ability to connect the dots up. Um, using the tools we have now, if we went back in time, we could have prevented a lot of these people from coming into the U.S., but we didn't have the tools and we didn't integrate them back uh, 15 years ago, and that's why we had a certain vulnerability. But again, I want to emphasize, these were not migrants. Yeah and they weren't refugees, they were just visitors. Mm -hmm. So it was an information sharing? Is that that what you mean by the integration? It was information sharing, it was information integration, and turning it into an operational uh, outcome that allows you to prevent people from getting in who might be dangerous. Right. So in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the U.S. enforcement agencies and immigration agencies were really trying desperately to prevent what they thought was a a next attack that they felt was imminent. With the benefit of hindsight, could you speak a bit to the successes and some of the lessons learned from that, um, you know, both from a security, I would say, and a civil liberties perspective and a national unity perspective, from some of the more controversial initiatives of that year, I'm thinking of things like the NSEERS program, some of the preventive detention and arrests that took place and, and, and other measures. So first, I think if you look at it from a security perspective, you'd have to say it was uh, very successful because although we had good reason to fear uh, terrorist attacks following on to September 11th, and in fact, there were some plots uh, that were contemplated. In fact, there was no successful attack in the U.S. during the succeeding eight years. So we obviously succeeded in that. 
Um, I think from a, a civil liberty standpoint and from a kind of a general uh, public reaction standpoint, what's remarkable is that although there was an initial uh, surge of uncertainty and anxiety and to some degree acting out against people who were of uh, Arab lineage, that actually quieted down pretty quickly. President Bush went out there and very forcefully said, we're going to be aggressive in preventing terrorists from getting in and carrying out attacks, but we're not going to condemn a whole religion or a whole people. And I think that was the appropriate balance. Um, so things actually quieted down uh, relatively soon after September 11th. As far as the individual practices we put into effect, everything actually was within the law, but the laws were, in fact, not properly adapted to dealing with terrorism. But, for example, we did use legal tools that were available under the immigration laws and the criminal laws to arrest people or to detain them for questioning if they had some connection to the, to the terrorists. And that might have been a, a financial connection. It might have been a commonality of an address or something of that sort. But actually, um, pretty quickly, again, things settled down. There were some legal changes that allowed the government to do things a little bit more easily. But again, I don't think there was any wholesale abrogation of civil liberties. The NSEERS program in particular, did you want to talk about that? Because that's at least the call and registration program. Well, that, that was, yeah. yes, and that was, for the listener, that was a program to register people from certain countries, um, especially. And again, it was a program which, as a short-term solution, was understandable. Eventually, it was abandoned um, as we got better intelligence. Um, and I do want to stress it was focused on people from particular countries, mm-hmm. not based on religion per se. Um, but again, it was a registration program, and it was designed, at least in the short term, to stabilize what was a very uncertain and uh, you know, potentially catastrophic situation. There's been substantial concern related to the recent terrorist <clears throat> attacks in Europe, um, and in particular the return of European jihadists basically to their home countries. And perhaps a, this is a smaller issue, but an issue nonetheless here in the United States as well. And also concern related to the infiltration of terrorists into the refugee and migrant flows, which are, are pretty unregulated into Europe. What does Europe need to do now from a security perspective and in the future from a security perspective to securitize the flows and to allow for kind of a robust refugee system? Well, in many ways, Europe is now where we were prior to September 11th. They're not, uh, they're uneven in terms of their intelligence collection capabilities and they're not fully stitched together in terms of pulling together, collecting, and integrating as a whole all of the intelligence that they do have in the various departments and agencies in various countries. And in fact, I'm currently involved uh, with the European Think Tank on a project to really make recommendations for retooling European intelligence. Um, I think they need to do a number of things. First of all, there's a lot more that can be collected simply based on uh, uh, very simple travel information uh, relating to people coming in uh, or returning from overseas, particularly from countries where we do know there's a, a Daesh or, or ISIS uh, activity going on. That would give much greater visibility to who's coming in and who's going out. A better understanding of what's going on in communities and a better integration of communities into the life of the countries would in many cases reduce the incentive people have to affiliate themselves with extreme groups. Uh, and that means better community engagement, but also means uh, coming up with a narrative against violent extremism that tells 
a young, particularly young men, uh, that they're better off making their stake in a European country with a future than to go to fight in, in Syria or in Iraq. So there's a whole series of things they need to do. Um, and again, finally on the refugee issue, it's much better to process refugees near where they are fleeing in a safe location where you can vet them and interview them than to be presented with a situation where they arrive on your shore and now it's kind of too late. They're there and it's very hard to, to uh, at that point, really examine them. Right. Thank you. Does the, does the situation in Europe present vulnerabilities to the United States? Um, it's been raised in the context of the visa waiver program, for example. And if so, what needs to be done to reduce those vulnerabilities, both in terms of U.S.-European cooperation, um, but also in terms, perhaps, of U.S. immigration policies? Well, there's been a concern going way back to September 11, 2001, <clears throat> about the possibility that radicals from Europe would come to the U.S. And Zacharias Massawi was an example of that, Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. So this is not a new problem. Um, we do have, for even for visa waiver countries, between our collection of passenger information and our electronic system for travel authorization, we are able to get visibility into pretty much everybody who comes from Europe into the U.S., even without a visa. And much of what we've been able to build analytically uh, from an intelligence standpoint allows us to identify people who need a closer look, they need to be put into secondary and maybe even return back home. So those tools have worked well and they continue to work well. There have been some recent changes uh, with respect to the program, particularly as it relates to Europeans who've gone to certain countries, and that's understandable and sensible, but it's, again, reasonable. So I, I don't think this is a cause for panic. It is a cause for making sure that we are um, continuing to carefully examine the information we do get about people traveling and to look for linkages or connections that might warrant a red flag. In the, in the visa waiver program in particular has been strengthened from a security perspective to the point that it's a secure program in your view? I, I think it is. No program is perfect, of course. And we've had, if you look at the few terrorist attacks that have been successful in the U.S., they've come from people who are lawfully resident here. So uh, it's certainly not the only vulnerability we have. But again, I think the program does collect sufficient basic information that it is um, capable of being quite a robust security program. And then don't forget, when people come in, they get interviewed by somebody at the border. And that means there's an opportunity to eyeball somebody and really see whether there's something going on that warrants a closer look. And the customs inspectors who do that work are very well trained and detecting people who are being deceptive or evasive. You and uh, former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Jen Napolitano, recently wrote an open letter evoking the nation's heritage and its identity as a nation of immigrants and as a haven for refugees. Do you think our government has done a good job of creating a robust and a secure refugee resettlement um, program that both honors that heritage and is a secure program as well? I think generally our program is secure and works well. Now, a lot of people are under the misimpression because they look at Europe that somehow we people, refugees, just show up and they get admitted. In fact, uh, we work with the UN in place, and it's basically an 18-month to two-year process uh, from the time somebody first comes out and looks to be uh, taken in as a refugee to when they finally get resolved. And we do examine them. They're interviewed uh, to the extent we can run records checks, those are, are, are done. 
if you were trying to place a terrorist operative in the U.S., probably the least efficient way would be the refugee resettlement program. The other piece of this is we have traditionally been good about placing refugees in communities where they can be integrated and get proper social services. And, you know, if you go back to when we had the Vietnamese boat people who were refugees, many of them became among the most successful Americans making contributions in government, in business, and in all areas of life. Is there a case to be made, and maybe you've just made it, that um, a strong refugee protection policy actually furthers U.S. interests and U.S. security even? I, I do think a strong refugee policy does. First of all, uh, you know, we are a nation largely composed of refugees or descendants of refugees, and everybody will remember times their own ancestors were fleeing from something, whether it was pogroms in Russia or the communist takeover in Vietnam. And many of our leading lights in this country are, are the product of that, that migration. As long as we're secure and we're genuinely determining that people are entitled to asylum, this can be a, a, a way of invigorating our country with uh, people who are highly motivated because they're really prepared to take a, a perilous journey and to dislocate themselves to come to make a new life for themselves. And I think that's generally a good thing. So I wanted to ask you, following up on your comments about President Bush after 9-11, <clears throat> um, about two ideas that have been raised in the presidential campaign. The first is placing a moratorium on the entry of Muslims into the United States. Did you want to, do you think that that idea is a viable idea, a good idea? Would it enhance U.S. security or would it undermine it? I, I, think, I think that's... Um, a ridiculous idea. It's ridiculous for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I think it way, way overstates uh, the degree to which Muslims are somehow associated with terrorism. Unquestionably, there are some Muslims who are extreme, but it is a minority. Uh, we also don't test people based on their religion uh, as a basis for entry into the United States. In fact, it's not clear to me how you would know what somebody's religion was and how you could prove what their religion was. And I will tell you from looking back on the cases we investigated of uh, radical um, uh, Islamists in the U.S., many of them were converts who started out as Christians, and at some point they became radicalized and, and almost converted as an afterthought to uh, the decision to become extreme. You would not know these people were Muslim because they look like they have blonde hair and blue eyes or they're Hispanic looking. So it, it, it's both an idea that's odious to the value of America and utterly impractical to enforce in the real world. Mm -hmm. And then the second idea is the construction of a fence or wall along the entire U.S.-Mexico border. Is that a viable idea, a, a good security idea or not? So when I was secretary, we built about 600 miles of fence along the southern border. And there is value to fence in some parts of the border, where the distance between the border and what I call the vanishing point, which is either a town or a highway, is very short, and you need to have a little bit of a delay so you can interdict people from coming over. But there are other parts of the border where a fence makes no sense at all. It doesn't add any value. It's just a waste of money. And actually, if you're looking to drive down illegal immigration, it's much more effective to focus on employers and employment. And to create an, an, a more robust E-Verify system and have it more widely used, and frankly, to couple it with legal temporary migration so that work needs are satisfied in a legal way as opposed to an illegal way. 
to try to do all this by putting up a fence or a wall is like trying to row a boat with one oar. You're just going to go around in circles. Do you think that there's a misalignment in terms of funding between border security versus employment verification or internal enforcement? I don't know that it's misalignment of funding. I think that, you know, the business community has, for years at least when I was there, pushed back against an overly robust employment verification system. And I, I think that's a mistake, although <clears throat> I think in fairness, um, for those jobs where you can't find Americans to do the work, you can't really do a robust enforcement program unless you also create a legal way people can hire workers, including temporary workers. And those two ought to be really part of the same solution. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Mr. Secretary, our organization is organizing a, a large conference in July on rethinking the global refugee protection system, and it badly needs to be rethought because of the 60 million people, more refugees now than at any time since World War II. Um, I wonder if you could give us your thoughts on what needs to be done to address these, cri these multiple refugee-producing crises over the long term. Well, I would say, first of all, that the issue of refugee movement and migration is shaping up to be one of the huge national security issues of the next decade because simply the sheer number of people moving not only puts those people themselves at risk in terms of their own security, but can cause a real dislocation in society when all of a sudden hundreds of thousands of people show up and now you've got to figure out how you manage the process. You also don't want to have a situation where people are just stagnating in camps year in and year out because you're creating essentially a, a hospitable environment for people to recruit extremists and criminals. So I think you've got to look at the system end to end. Part of that means um, dealing with countries that are failed states and, and trying to at least manage them in such a way you can have a rule of law and some law and order so people don't have to flee. When you do have war and you do have flight, you need to have a, a robust system for housing people, continuing to educate them and processing them in a secure but reasonable time frame if they are going to move to someplace else. And frankly, it's enough of a global issue that it warrants the whole global community kicking in money to make sure that could be operated in an efficient way. And finally, when people do qualify for asylum and are moved into host countries, there has to be a process in place to integrate them get them educated, make sure they can find work so that they become productive members of society and not simply uh, embittered clusters of people who are really marginalized. In our own hemisphere, there are real, as you know, rule of law deficiencies in the Northern Triangle states of Central America yeah. driving children and families with young children to the United States in large numbers. What do you think needs to be done to solve that crisis and to address it? I think first and foremost, we've got to work with local governments down there to strengthen their rule of law and, and not to have things develop into what in effect would be a failed state within our own hemisphere. Um, and so that, I think, is a, a top priority. We also have to be clear in the messages that we send that um, coming into the country illegally will not guarantee that you get to stay and that we are prepared to apprehend people and hold them while they're processed. You don't want to create a, disin a perverse incentive for people to come because they believe that once they set foot across the border, they're home free. So I think some of the tough things that Secretary Johnson has done about sending people back are important in making sure people don't have an unrealistic expectation about the value to them of fleeing across the border illegally. Do you think that there's been an appropriate balance between enforcement and protection in those cases? And, uh, 
you know, an expedited consideration or a, you know, full consideration of people's claims? There's been a little bit of, of uh, schizophrenia. I mean, I think that sometimes there are, are elements within the government and the public that are strongly advocating for a very lenient approach. The law actually is not that lenient. It's pretty tough in terms of what the standards are. And I do think that that means you have to, when people don't qualify, they have to be removed. I think what would be a big mistake would be to suggest that you can not qualify and nevertheless de facto be granted amnesty. You were a strong champion as the Secretary of Homeland Security for Immigration Reform. Could you sketch out what you think would be the essential elements of the next big immigration reform bill, whether it's comprehensive immigration reform or some other language, and in particular, the enforcement dimensions of it? So I I think there are are three critical elements. You know, one is the issue of enforcement uh, at the border, having, you know, whether that means, again, having appropriate tactical infrastructure and personnel at the land borders and also appropriate screening at our airports. The second is appropriate interior enforcement and making sure employers are are disincentivized to hire illegals. But at the same time, you have to have a method to bring people into the country who want to work on a temporary basis, properly identified and properly regulated, who are going to pick up the labor demand that is now being satisfied by, by illegal workers. Those three allow you in an efficient way to really can't eliminate illegal crossings, but you can really reduce it. Um, if you don't have those, then it, again, it's a little bit like trying to uh, row a boat with one oar. You're not going to really make, make progress going forward. And do you want to talk a bit about the, what you think the prospects are for immigration, a broad immigration reform bill? If uh, there's a Democratic president come January or a Republican? Um, you know, we've had a Republican president who tried. We had a Democratic president who tried. Um, I think if you poll people, the majority of people in the country, and you lay out what I have laid out, um, and even if you say that people who have been here for a long period of time without authorization should be at least allowed to get temporary visas, I think you're going to get a a significant majority of people who support that. I think two things need to happen for this to occur. One is you do have to demonstrate to people that you are committed to the enforcement side of this. Uh, which is why when we were in office, we were pretty tough. Uh, and maybe some people thought overly tough, but, but we wanted to make that point. Um, and secondly, you've got to recognize that nobody's going to get everything they want. And both sides have to come up with something that answers at least the basic requirements of fairness and security that they're looking for without insisting that it's everything I want and nothing you want. Are there additional things that the United States needs to do moving forward to address the terrorist threat to the country that aren't related to maybe migrants, both domestically and in terms of our foreign policies? Well, I think, you know, much as people don't want to be involved in foreign wars, one thing we've learned starting on 9-11 is when you have disorder and disruption and failed states in other parts of the world, they're going to reach out and touch us. The, board, the, the ocean is no longer an adequate protection against that. It behooves us, working with our allies, to come up with solutions that will stabilize problems in the region. I'm not talking about promoting you know, ideal democracy. I mean fundamental rule of law, fundamental order, and fundamental peace. Because without that, you're going to constantly have a pool of recruits. Um, second, I do think the Europeans need to raise their 
ability to collect and integrate intelligence, and they have to be more willing to share with us. Some countries do. Others get very reluctant to do so. But this is a global threat, and it requires a global response. Um, and finally, I do think we need to understand better what is driving people um, into the arms of extremists. And in many ways, the way extremists recruit is the way gangs recruit in South America. It's by presenting themselves as tough guys and promising all kinds of benefits to, to these young, particularly young men, but also young women who come and join them. And we need to undercut that narrative. Some of that is through persuasion, and some of it is, frankly, by making sure that ISIS and, and groups like that don't win, that they are seen to be losing and that they're seen to be losing ground. Mm -hmm. Do you have any final thoughts for us? We very much appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today. Well, I think migration, um, it's an important issue. Um, often a lot of different elements get confused. Um, people confuse immigrants who are coming to work with people who are coming to visit. Um, terrorism and crime get conflated. Um, but I do think that if, if you look at each element of the solution, there is a solution here that will, first of all, manage the migration problem and reduce illegal migration. But at the same time, we've got to go back to the source of a lot of the migration, whether it's fear of violence or even concerns about economic development. The more we can help countries in other parts of the world develop stability and economic growth, the more people will want to stay. And then instead of having people fleeing to come into the U.S., some of whom are coming illegally, we'll have people who want to basically consume American goods or will produce products that Americans want. And that's a win-win for everybody. Thank you very much. My pleasure. To learn more about Secretary Chertoff's organization, The Chertoff Group, visit their website at www.chertoffgroup.com. CMS On Air is produced by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. Thanks to Ronnie Pillisher of Pillbox Productions, LLC, for sound editing this episode. And to stay up to date on the Center for Migration Studies of New York, including our research projects, publications, events, and video, visit us at cmsny.org. <laughs>